0: All right, I'm going to take a quick drink. I'm still congested. I got, like, sick, like, t- like 35 days ago, and I'm still a little congested. I think a lot of you can relate. Um, so <clears throat> one of my favorite movies growing up was The Lion King, Okay. I grew up in the heyday of VHS tapes, okay? And I, I think VHS tapes were like $200 a piece or something. I don't know. But they, we, I grew up in the heyday of VHS tapes. And so me and my siblings, we would get a VHS tape of a movie, and we would just watch it over and over and over again. We had none of this Netflix where you could just pick anything at any moment. We were stuck with just a few movies. And so these movies that we owned, and we ended up owning a lot because my mom spoiled us, but these movies that we owned, uh, they became sacred to us because we would watch them over and over again. They became so sacred to us that, you know, we're we're the kids that have all the lines memorized. We have the cadences of the lines memorized, especially for me with Lion King. So much so, recently, I was watching the the modern CGI version, uh, the new Lion King version with my my family, and, and every minute, I'm going, that's not how you say that line. Like, you can't say it that way. My wife's like, you're annoying, okay? Like, stop Doing that. But Lion King, it, it, it's a pretty uh, famous and epic movie. It was a game changer in like 1994 or 1995, whenever it came out. Because one of the things it did, I, this could be not true at all, but I'm pretty sure it's a true fact about it. It was one of the first movies to start with no credits. I think Disney had to pay this huge fine in order to start the movie off with no credits. And so you probably remember the scene. You start to see a little bit of a, the sunrise, and all of a sudden you hear, Ah, Savannah. Police, Navidad, or whatever they, whatever they're saying. That's it, right? And so whatever is being said there, and then the whole opening scene of the movie is all of these lions, the whole, or, or all of these animals, really, the whole animal kingdom is traveling somewhere, and you're kind of, you're enthralled, you're like, this music's great, where are the credits, what's going on, and you just see these animals traveling towards a place, and then you see, okay, they're at this place, it's like kind of, it almost looks like a giant throne, we, le- we learn later in the movie it's called Pride Rock, and then we see some, some lions running around, what we realize is going on, is there, there is a presentation of the next lion king. This is what's happening. They hire a baboon to come out and hold him for all to see. And then all the animals bow down before the lion king and they're praising, and it's just this big extravagant thing. And so how this soon-to-be king or this next king in the line is really kind of coronated or celebrated or welcomed is through loud music. It's through uh, all of these animals Uh, arriving it's through this kind of ceremonial display that uh, they hire baboon to to do for them and it's just this big loud epic thing for this next king in the lineage well what we're going to see in today's passage is jesus's birth into the world it's not as epic There are epic moments, like we just read one of them in the scripture, and there are epic moments in Jesus' birth, but Jesus' birth is full of far more humble and lowly moments than epic moments. And so today we're going to be wrapping up our Advent series. The Advent series that we've been in is called The Christmas Story from Mary's Perspective. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Mary-heavy passages of the Christmas story. If you don't know what the Christmas story is, the Christmas story is the story of God sending his son, who's God in the flesh, to earth. It's God taking on flesh. It's God coming to earth. It's God arriving to earth earth. And so we've been looking in the gospel of Luke at, at some of these stories where we really get to see Mary's perspective. In fact, I kind of think Luke got to talk to her or someone really close to her about all these kind of details we see. And we even saw at the end of the scripture in there that, that Mary treasured these things in her heart and pondered them and remembered them. And so we've been taking some time to look at maybe how would Mary tell us the Christmas story? What would, What is the Christmas story from her perspective? And so today, the passage that we're getting in uh, is going to be the actual birth of Jesus. We're going to get to the actual birth of Jesus today. And so here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to do the first 20 verses together, just have a nice story time together. And then, after that, there's kind of two takeaways that I think Mary and Luke would want us to have from this passage. I think that what we don't realize sometimes is the biblical authors, they weren't just simply writing history, although I believe they are writing true history, but they are often trying to make points about what God was doing in history. And so I think Luke would want us to read through this and not just get the details and the facts of the story, but there are things that he would want us to Take away from this passage. And so there will be two takeaways that we'll talk about after our story time. And then after those two takeaways, I think those two takeaways kind of leave me with two challenges, like kind of two ways I'm challenged by those things that Luke wants us to see. So again, story time, two takeaways two challenges. That's what uh, we'll be doing today. So let's hop into it. Uh, Before we hop into the the passage, just a little recap of where we've been at. Week one of this series, we we saw the birth announcement to Mary of Jesus. Gabriel, an angel came to her and said, hey, you're going to birth the son of God. And she's kind of like, I don't, this is, uh, okay, sure. (laughs) Like she's apprehensive. Week two of this series, last week we saw Mary goes to her relative Elizabeth, who God had in her old age, allowed her to become pregnant with John the Baptist, who was going to be the person that prepared the way for Jesus, and they have just this kind of... Mir- miracle-confirming moments together where that excites Mary and it gets her excited about what God is doing and she breaks out into this beautiful song that Rand uh, just taught us so well last week that talks about all of the things that, that God is doing and how he works in this world and how he was working in that moment. And so today, we'll get to the actual birth of Jesus. So let's, uh, let's, let's start by just reading the first uh, four verses of chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. If you're not familiar with your Bible, it's in two parts. The Old Testament is the vast majority of your Bible, and then the New Testament starts off with Jesus's life, four different accounts of Jesus's life, and Luke is one of those. So uh, verse one says this, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Curinus was governor of Syria. And everyone went to, to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Okay, let's pause there. So, remember... When we talked about Simba's birth, it was followed by this animal parade, and it was this whole huge event at Pride Rock. Jesus' birth is surrounded by his family having to do their taxes, okay? Simba, born at Pride Rock. Jesus, born at H&R Block, okay? And what we know, too, is Mary and Joseph, they, they were going to Bethlehem because of the way that Rome was kind of oppressing Israel. Rome was asserting its authority over Israel, and so Rome was doing this in order to oppress Israel. So this isn't just merely doing taxes and how they did taxes back then. In fact, this was a bit uncommon in how they would do taxes, Rome as a country. Rome was sending a message to Israel that, hey, we're the ones who are really in charge. And so Mary and Joseph find themselves in Bethlehem because of Roman oppression. And then there's this key detail in there, and I would say it's a gospel detail that sometimes we miss. A gospel detail that Joseph is in the lineage of David. And the reason I say it's a gospel detail is because part of the good news is that the God of Israel is fulfilling his promises to Israel and to the world. And so Jesus, being born into a family in the lineage of David, is fulfilling this promise that God has. Even if you go and read some of Paul's articulations of the gospel in the New Testament, he often cites this idea of being in the lineage of David. Because this is part of the good news. God is doing what he said he would do long ago. Ago. Okay, so they find themselves in Bethlehem. That's the place where David was born, and so that's where David's lineage goes to, to register in this situation. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. He, Joseph, he went there to register with Mary, who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let's stop there in the story. And so we get to this moment where Jesus is born. They're in Bethlehem. The town is packed. They can't find a place to stay, right? This is the famous, there was no place for them at the end, right? But as we see in in this translation, it it translates it guest room. And so it was so packed, nobody in town had a guest room for them. They couldn't stay anywhere. And so they find themselves where the animals stay. And so this could have been a stable, but a lot of the animals in that day, they kind of stayed in part of the house. And it was kind of the lower part of the house. And was often kind of this like open air garage. As you can imagine, animals need an open-air garage if they're going to be staying in there because of what they do. Uh, and this is where, this is the only place they can find, find a space. It also, it could have been a cave, but they're, they're, they're in this place where animals are, and, and Mary has to have the baby. Mary has to birth Jesus. And so she does in this very humble and lowly place, right? I haven't met any moms yet who said, you know, I want to have my baby in a barn, right? I haven't met that mom yet, but that's where Mary finds herself due in part to Rome's oppression of her and her family and her people. And then it says that Jesus' first bed was a manger. The Lord of the universe, his first bed was a place animals ate from. The Lord's first bed was a plate for animals. Look what, just look in that little deal. What our Lord is willing to do in order to restore us and all of creation. He, he finds himself in a humble and lowly situation willingly. All right, the next part of the story, it's the most Lion King-esque part of the story. This is where the story has this kind of epic moment. It starts in verse 8. Wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Let's pause there. Years ago, I got to teach this to a group of fourth and fifth graders. I, I used to teach in a Sunday school at the, one of the churches I grew up at. And so I'm probably early college or late teens teaching them this passage. And so I go, hey, t- hey, just close your eyes. Imagine you're some shepherds. Start cutting with some sheep. I think I might have even got some stuffed animal sheep for them to cuddle with. I'm just close your eyes. And then I just went, suddenly! And then I just started yelling and describing the scene. And they were terrified. Like I think one kid started running around. like They were just scared, okay? Okay? It was great. I'll never forget that moment. Like made the made the story come alive for me. That was the point. (Laughter) um. And so, but this is what's happening to these shepherds. They're just probably sleeping. Maybe one person's on watch, making sure the sheep go away. I don't know what their rules for shepherding were at night. And then the angel, an angel just appears, starts talking to them, and then out of nowhere, more angels start appearing and start talking to them. And then I, I want us just to point out: I think sometimes the vision we get here is the just angels singing like with handbells, like, peace on earth, right? But we have to realize this is some military language being used. When a company and a host of angels that's military language and so what was happening was an, an army of angels a battalion of angels just shows up and they start singing I think probably something that sounded like a war cry or a marching cry we just usually don't read it that way because our war cries and marching cries are filled with violence and death but the Lord's war cry is filled with peace and love and joy. And so this is this scene with the shepherds. And so one of the angels told him, hey, go into town. You're going to find this promised Messiah, this chosen one, the son of God. You're going to find him in a manger. That's going to be the sign to you. You know which baby it is? It's the one in a the manger. There's no other babies in a manger tonight. It's that one. And so then we see what happens next in the story. Verse 15. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And so the shepherds get this good news about a Savior, and they go and they find this Savior. And I just imagine them talking to Mary and Joseph about the things they had seen from the Lord. And then the shepherds, I just they go out into town or they go tell whomever, just everybody they know, the angels they saw, the things they heard from Mary and Joseph. I love to wonder how old the shepherds were here. You know, were they like King David-type shepherds, like too young to even go to battle? So they're like really young? And i just like to wonder that like 30 years later when Jesus starts his ministry— were they still alive? Were they going, oh, this is the guy that we saw that one night. Like, I, I just like to wonder about that. We don't know. And so this is kind of, this is the, the last part of the Christmas story that we're in the, this Advent with all these kind of famous scenes of, of Jesus' birth. And, and, and as we see the Christmas story, I think from Mary's perspective, and I think the author Luke does a great job showing us what, what that night was like uh, for Mary. But I, I also think what Luke, like I said earlier, I think he wants us to take away some things from this passage. As we read it, we would see some of these very obvious and big details here that we might not notice 2,000 years later. But I think the first readers of the Gospel of Luke definitely would have noticed at least two takeaways. And the first takeaway uh, from the passage is this. There is an intentional parallel being made between Caesar and Jesus here. There is an intentional parallel being made between Caesar and Jesus, the, empo- the emperor of Rome, the ruler of Rome, and Jesus. So first, why you see this intentional parallel is Luke starts off this chapter mentioning Augustus Caesar as being named as the reason why Mary and Joseph find themselves in Bethlehem. The only reason they're there and not Nazareth is because of uh, Augustus Caesar, which is really interesting. I like how this author, uh, Diane G. Chen, who has written a great commentary on the Gospel of Luke, here's what she says about this. The quote will be on the screen. She says this, Powerful Augustus becomes an unwitting, unwitting instrument of the divine plan. The census that signifies oppression serves to locate the mother of Jesus in the right city at the right time so that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem fulfills the prophecy of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel. As Caesar is oppressing Israel, God is bringing the deliverance of Israel and the deliverance of the world. So much so that this prophecy from Micah, if you go and read that Old Testament book of those prophets' words, prophesied that this everlasting king, this Davidic king, this king who is going to make everything right, he was going to be born in Bethlehem. C- Caesar, unknowingly in his oppression of Israel, is bringing about the deliverance of Israel. So that, that's one parallel between Caesar and Jesus. But there's another very strong parallel, I would say even stronger than that, particularly in the use of these terms that we see through all, all throughout this passage, and these terms in particular, uh, good, or good news and savior, these terms in this passage. Uh, they, those terms have strong Old Testament significance. But they also had really strong significance in that day about Caesar himself. Look what Daryl Bach, who's another great theologian on the Gospel of Luke, says about those two terms. That quote will be on the screen too. It says this, The term, he's talking about good news, is not culturally insignificant. Since the birth of the Emperor Augustus was announced with a report of good news and the arrival of a Savior. Savior. When the angels and Luke are using these words to describe the birth of Jesus, they are making an intentional parallel between Caesar and Jesus. In that day, the person that brought good news was the emperor, was the next Caesar in line. The one that would be their savior was the emperor, the next Caesar in line. It seems to me that as... The angels and Luke are intentionally making sure we see that this is how the birth of Jesus is being declared. It's like they're trying to say to us, do you want to know what the actual good news is? Do you want to know what the actual good news is? The true Savior has come. The true Savior that can save the world has come. There is this intentional parallel being made between Caesar and Jesus here and Luke definitely wants us to see it. Okay, next takeaway is this. I think Mary and Luke would want us to see this here. And it's this. Humble situations, humble situations, humble and lowly situations abound on the night of Jesus' birth. Humble and lowly situations abound on the night of Jesus' birth. Joseph and Mary herself are lowly and oppressed and far from home. Jesus' first bed was a plate for animals. And shepherds are who the angels show up to. And many commentators and many academics of that day about shepherds, they're going to tell you the shepherds were the average Joes or the hired hands or seen as the lower class in that society. Humbleness abounds in the birth story of Jesus. Mary's song from last week, the Magnificat that we looked at, it's coming true. One of the lines in that song is, God will lift up the humble. That's what he is doing. In the birth story, God is showing his humility by lowering himself, taking on flesh, The flesh of a baby even, and not just any baby, a baby born into an oppressed family. Humbleness abounds, and the Lord is lifting up the humble in this story. And so those are are the two things that I think Luke and even Mary would want us to take away from the birth story. That there's this intentional parallel between Caesar and Jesus being made here. And also that humbleness and lowliness abounds on the night of Jesus' birth. But those takeaways, they kind of challenge me. Like there's just a couple different ways that those takeaways kind of challenge me, challenge my life, make me go, do I need to think through some things differently? And so let me talk about two challenges. The first challenge is this, that this passage gives to me. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak it as if speaking it to all of us. And it's this, is Jesus... Better than Caesar to you? Is Jesus better than Caesar to you? That's the first challenge to me. Like, what's the good news that you long to hear? Who's the Savior that you wish to have? If Jesus was born today, in our context or in your context, who would be the Caesar of your life? This passage in Luke, it would have been scandalous. If Caesar saw this, if Caesar saw this, he would have said, he would have seen the clear parallel being made between him and Jesus. And he would have seen this passage as an act of rebellion and sedition and probably even treason. This passage would have read a lot more scandalous than how we read it with our very soft Advent songs. This would have sounded very rebellious. And so I just ask that question Is Jesus better than Caesar to you? Because that's what the angels and that's what Luke are trying to communicate to us. Jesus is better than Caesar. And so you have to ask yourself, because Caesar's not around. I don't know if you know that anymore. I had a dog named Caesar. He's also not around anymore. But who, if, if Jesus showed up in your context today, was born here, who's the Caesar of your life? Who's the Caesar of our lives? Who is the one that that we think brings good news? Who is the Savior? What, What is the good news of hope that you long to hear? Who or what is the Savior that you want? Or who is the empire or empires around you telling you is the Savior and is the good news? Who are those things? It could be a person, it could be a goal, it could be a desire that acts as your good news or as your savior. But what Mary and Luke want you to know is Jesus is better than any of that. He's far better than any of those things. And it's going to sound scandalous to you, especially if you prefer Caesar as your savior and you prefer the work that Caesar does as the good news that you hope and long for. I think this passage challenges me because I think it's saying, metaphorically speaking, stop Accepting the saviors and the good news that the empires around you tell you to accept. The true good news is that Jesus is the only true savior of the world and your life. That's the true good news. Is, is Jesus better than Caesar to you? That's the point this author is trying to make here or challenge us with, I think. Another challenge in this passage, the second challenge that I'm challenged with is this. Do humble and lowly situations abound in my life? That's how this challenges me. Do humble and lowly situations abound in my life? Mary, last week, she sings this song about God's work among the humble, to the humble, for the humble. And in her song, she talks about God's Opposition to the powerful and to the prideful. And then this week, God brings his son into the world in many, with and through many humble and lowly situations. And I, I can't help but be challenged by that. Is my life marked by humble situations? Is my heart marked by humility and lowliness? Do I have relationships with people from humble and lowly backgrounds? Would me or any of my friends be the people that the angel showed up to that night? I'm not trying to guilt trip us into thinking we all just have to like become like shepherds and work like shepherd-like jobs in order to be accepted by God. That's not true. God accepts us because of his work and his work alone. But what I am trying to point out is, is that humility, which you could define as a reliance on God for everything, or even just a willingness for us to be weak, or around the weak, it just doesn't often mark our lives. And that might be problematic. Problematic. Because it seems to me, as I read scripture, those are the places that God does some of his most beautiful and powerful work. So if you're in here, does God feel distant sometimes? There's a lot of reasons for that. But maybe one of the reasons is you live a proud life where you save yourself. And you only surround yourself with strong people and strong friends. Who needs a Savior if that's your life? If you live a strong life where you save yourself and your friends are all strong and the people around you are all strong, what, what do you need saving from? I, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to guilt trip but the, any of us, but this is just how the passage is challenging me. Maybe I should have fleshed this out more before preaching on it. But I'm just challenged. Is my life marked by humbleness and lowliness? Are the people around me marked by that? Because in this story, it is clear they're trying to point out the humble estate of everyone in the story of Joseph, of Mary, of the shepherds, and Jesus. The manger, I think it's mentioned three times a sign of humbleness and lowliness. It's mentioned three times because that's what God was willing to do. That's where God was going. That's where God was starting his major moment in restorative history and redemptive history. And so I think when Mary retold the Christmas story, I think think she would have made sure to let us know how wild this powerful work of God was and how it showed up in humility. And so that's... That's all for the series that we've been in, where we've looked at the Christmas story from Mary's perspective. I hope it's kind of shaped us and challenged us and helped us see more of who God is. And so, church, may we choose Jesus over Caesar, and may we become humble and associate with the humble and the lowly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you came into this world. It, it really is astonishing, God. It's so astonishing that people doubt it at times, God, and just can't believe it at times, God. God, give us hearts that see the beauties of that. Give us hearts that trust in that story and believe in you and see the truth of this story and all of the truth of this story, God. Even God, I want to just pray if there's anybody in here who wrestle with this story, wrestle with the, with the truths of Scripture, that you would just do something in their heart this this morning that causes them to, to believe, to all of a sudden have faith where they didn't have faith. God, as, as we see that there's this intentional parallel being made between the Caesar of Jesus' day and your son, I pray, I, I pray that we would see where we are, where we would rather worship the Caesars of our day, where we would rather hear their good news, where we would rather be saved by them, or we actually let them save us in weak ways. And would we turn from that stuff and turn to you, turn to your son, the true savior of the world, God. So God, we, we love you and we need you. Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts this morning with this word. Amen.